Thanks, John. <clears throat> well, keep Revelation 2 open if you would. And uh, I wonder if perhaps you have seen uh, uh, advertisements for the BBC series Vigil. Um, not necessarily endorsement. I've seen some of the, the reviews come back on it are not the greatest, but um, it is a crime investigation thriller set aboard HMS Vigil, a fictional ballistic uh, nuclear missile submarine. And on board, there is a suspicious death that leads to the uncovering of a plot by police and by MI5 that goes far deeper and darker than simply murder. Multiple attempts are being made by a foreign agent masquerading as a member of the crew to sabotage the boat and compromise its mission of nuclear deterrence against Britain's geopolitical enemies. So while this stealthy ship does its utmost to avoid and counter multiple threats around it, its greatest threat came from within. And the storyline reveals a recurring reality that there are times when the greatest threats that are faced are the threats that come from within. And it is this dynamic that is in play when we come to the book of Revelation today and consider the letter to the church of Thyatira that John just read for us. Each of the seven churches faces a threat to its overcoming or being victorious regarding its faithful witness to King Jesus, and while operating in the hostile territory of this world. In recent weeks, we've seen how Smyrna had to deal with the threat of open persecution, and Pergamum, the persistent pressure to compromise coming from culture around them. But Thyatira's situation takes matters further and into even more dangerous waters. There are voices within their fellowship actively promoting spiritual compromise. The situation is critical. Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters written to the churches but of the seven, Thyatira is the smallest in context as a community. It was not a significant or cosmopolitan urban center, but by virtue of where it was situated, it had developed commercially and was renowned for its fine and exquisite craftsmanship in certain products such as textiles, bronze work, and pottery. In fact, in the book of Acts, we are introduced to the first convert to Christ on European soil, a woman by the name of Lydia who was a seller of purple cloth from Thyatira doing business in Philippi. And as we have heard about other places in the Roman Empire at this time, Thyatira had these things called guilds for those who engaged in these trades. And the activity in these guilds included not only social contact, which was very important, but also the practical aspects of doing business. And in that, there was also the worship of that guild's patron god. So participation at the guild could often include immoral sexual activity as an inherent aspect of this worship. 
It was an intentional practice whereby sexual participants were seeking to secure the favor of a God and gain a beneficial outcome for their lives as a result. This was how the Roman world of Thyatira functioned, where this church, Thyatira, existed as a light for King Jesus and for his rule. So what did Jesus, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, the one who is with us here this morning as King and Lord of this church, have to say to this particular church in Thyatira, and how are we to appropriately hear that message today? First, it is clear as we read this letter that there are some things we should admire about this church and aspire to in our own. Jesus had positive things to say about this congregation, and it's worth noting the description of Jesus um, before we delve into the content of what he had to say. In verse 18, it says that these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Do you have that image of Jesus hanging up in your child's room? I wonder. It's not something we typically think about of Jesus. Is in many ways an image of Jesus that may feel culturally foreign to us and in some ways intimidating, if not terrifying. It's not how we tend to think about him. Jesus is identified as the Son of God, which at first hearing may not seem all that remarkable or worthy of comment. However, it is the first time and the only time this expression will be used in the entirety of the book of Revelation. So why here, in this letter to little Thyatira, does Jesus choose to use the Son of God? He is preemptively asserting his divine authority against those who would seek to usurp it, who were in Thyatira. The guardian deity in a pagan world of Thyatira was the Greek god Apollo, the son of Zeus, Zeus being the supreme god among the, the Greek pantheon of gods. And also at this time, as we've heard, the Roman, Empire, the Roman emperors put themselves forward as the son of God themselves, demanding worship be offered to them in the form of burning incense to them. So it's into this situation that Jesus uniquely asserts his divine authority. He is the son of God and establishes his supreme authority over all other rivals. His eyes are like blazing fire, a divine vision, pure, penetrating, seeing all things, missing nothing. Jesus' feet like burnished or polished bronze is what that means. It's a reference back to his appearance in chapter 1 where the bronze is described as, as glowing in a furnace. This combined description is likely meant to invoke some sense that Jesus comes to Thyatira in order to refine and to purify. That his divine vision perceives and will expose corruption and compromise coming from within. But first, Jesus has words of praise for Thyatira in ways that most of us would likely consider high marks, things to which we should admire and aspire to. He says in verse 19, I know your deeds. I know your deeds, your love and faith, 
your servants and your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Thyatira is a church, among other things, that was active. Jesus saw their deeds and service. They were a loving church who also had taken steps of faith in following Jesus. They were apparently not stagnating or in decline, but were doing more than they had at first. They were progressing. Whereas Ephesus, the first church we looked at, had grown cold in love and needed to regain some sense of their spiritual momentum, Thyatira was likely a warm, welcoming group of people where one had the sense that good things were happening among them. Now, if King Jesus praised Thyatira for these things, we should likewise admire these qualities and aspire to them ourselves as King's Church. And by God's grace, we do experience them and will continue to experience them in increasing measure. Welcoming people, meeting needs within our church family and in the community, trusting God, always asking in faith, what's the next next thing and taking steps with him. All of this is praiseworthy in the eyes of Jesus and is admirable. But while this area of praise is a genuine dynamic of this letter and this passage, the predominant theme of it to Thyatira is not one of praise. It's a perilous threat that was being tolerated in their midst. So while there were some qualities we should admire and aspire to in Thyatira, we also need to be aware and on guard against that which could lead to spiritual compromise. What negative rebuke could Jesus possibly give after giving this positive list of praise? What thread could possibly be present? Well, look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Thyatira was tolerant of a situation in their midst that should have been raising serious concern and provoking decisive action. They had permitted dangerous and destructive teaching to take root in their fellowship through a self-appointed prophet identified as Jezebel, which is quite possibly not the actual name of this person, but a symbolic association with one of the most wicked and corrupt characters in the entire Old Testament. You'll find this on the pages of 1 Kings. You'll discover that Jezebel was a pagan queen married to Ahab, king of Israel. Through whom, through that king, she had promoted spiritual compromise through the worship of Baal in ancient Israel on a massive scale. Now, Baal worship, if you're not familiar, was also a fertility cult. It sought Baal's favor in making the land agriculturally fertile in order to produce a harvest. Now, among other things, Baal worshipers believed that their land would be made fertile as a result of the act of sexual union between Baal and the goddess Asherah. And they would seek to promote this by engaging in immoral sexual acts themselves. 
So the basic situation should sound somewhat familiar to us as we think of the pull of the trade guilds back in Thyatira. While the details and names are different, the fundamental situation in Thyatira is not that significantly removed from what had happened in ancient Israel. For the church in Thyatira, there was the pressure to compromise allegiance to King Jesus in order to gain financial security and prosperity and by engaging in the idolatrous and immoral activity of the guilds in worship to the gods associated with them. Whoever is labeled Jezebel by Jesus purports to speak authoritatively from God, saying that to do this was just fine. I mean, actually provoking professing Christians to sin and compromise in this fashion. After all, I mean, how else could they just make life work for themselves and their families? But worse still, this situation was tolerated and had been allowed to continue. How in the world did this debacle happen? How did they so dramatically deviate from simple devotion to Jesus as the one who had shed his blood to remove their sins and the sins of all who would turn to trust him in faith? How did they abandon abandon sound teaching, promoting faithfulness to Jesus and tolerate that which promoted compromise? One familiar with the New Testament teachings on the role of leaders in the church might well ask, where were the elders of Thyatira in all this? Where are those who are charged by God to guard the flock against false and destructive teaching? How could they not see the danger to the life and ministry of the church and act? While not explicit in this text, the situation in Thyatira is clearly a failure of God-ordained spiritual leadership and doctrinal oversight. Because any teacher that promotes disregard for or disobedience to the will of God as revealed in the pages of this book in the Bible is not to be tolerated. They cannot be from God if they contradict what God has already said. But it is also doubtful that compromise on this scale as was happening in Thyatira and this pervasive in individuals' lives and in the life of a church happened in one grand movement all at once. Because we know compromise is not typically something that is swallowed whole but piecemeal. Taken in sips and nibbles, if you will. It comes not like the torrent of Niagara Falls, but in a soft and subtle drip, with its ultimate impact barely perceptible in the moment, but real and dangerous nonetheless over time. It comes as the temptation to simply soften one's stance on things like the authority of the Bible, Or to be more moderate regarding faith in Jesus alone as the only means of salvation from our sins. It comes in neglecting a spiritual practice or discipline or lowering a wise and appropriate standard for godliness ever so slightly time and time again. The cumulative effect of this is how most instances of catastrophic compromise come, whether it be a well-known leader in Christian ministry, an entire church or denomination, 
or simply our own hearts. But King Jesus, the one with eyes like blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze sees the corrupting influencers of compromise clearly and will not fail to take decisive action to purify his church at Thyatira. Look at verses 21 through 23, the first part of 23. He says, I have given her, Jezebel, time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Jesus will remove the sources promoting sin and compromise that had been tolerated in Thyatira. Whoever Jezebel is had apparently been given ample opportunity by Jesus to recognize error and repent, but no, was unwilling to do so. In both she and any of her unrepentant followers, her children would suffer intensely. Now, what this suffering entails exactly is not made clear in the passage, but Jesus does not exclude death as an ultimate outcome. Now, this may seem harsh and unreasonable to some of us, particularly if you're here this morning just exploring Christianity. But I want you to consider how this passage is seeking to expand your understanding and mine of who Jesus is. Look at the second part of verse 23. Jesus says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus is the divine king, the one who shed his blood for the sins of the world, and he is the one to whom all must give an account. While he generously and mercifully provides opportunity to recognize sin and compromise against his ways, we dare not take this lightly. In considering why, listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Titus. Titus chapter 2. Listen to these words. They may be on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from our sin and purify us, making us his very own through faith in him. He did this so that you and I could be forgiven, that we could be set free from these things, and we dare not tolerate a slow drip of compromise that leads us to spiritual adultery for cultural convenience maintaining our comfort and security, or to simply make life work for us. 
In applying Jesus' words to Thyatira today, we need to consider, I think, a more subtle and seductive threat for us as Christians in the Western world that leads to spiritual compromise. Because I don't think any of us in the room are tempted to burn incense to the occupant of the White House or Downing Street on any occasion. But it is our tendency as people who have been living in this culture, to absorb the false narrative from our culture, that the purpose of life is to be happy and safe, minimizing threats to our comfort and security. We can unwittingly reduce following Jesus as a means to that end without him making any serious demands of us. When in reality... As we've read these letters and as we read this one, following him will often have a cost in terms of things just like our comfort and security. But our allegiance is ultimately owed to the one who created us and purchased us with his blood. The cultural, the cultural narrative is be happy. Well, the biblical narr narrative does, particularly the book of Revelation is lift our gaze to God's overarching redemptive story, God's narrative, using shocking images like we've read this morning and we will continue to read, to words to grab our attention and shake us out of our cultural slumber in order that we will live faithfully for Jesus in light of it. So we must be aware and on guard against that which could lead to spiritual compromise. But there were those in Thyatira who were a faithful remnant, who had not compromised and who were committed to sound teaching. In verse 24, if you're following along, it says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called dark secrets, deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. In Jesus' words here, there is the promise and assurance of vindication and an authority from an association with him. This was to be their motivation and frankly should be ours to not give up or compromise under pressure but rather hold fast and continue in faithfulness in King Jesus until the end. And what is that promise? To participate in his coming kingdom and share in his authority over the nations when he comes again. Verse 27 is a reference to Psalm 2, a messianic, a messianic psalm, a psalm that pointed to God's ultimate rule over this world through his chosen king, his anointed king, the Messiah. And while the faithful believers in Thyatira are facing all kinds of pressure, both from within their own congregation and without, Jesus gives them this assurance that the day is coming when faithfulness to him will be vindicated and rewarded. He is reminding them and us of how everything ends up so we can make sense of what is happening now. I mentioned Vigil at the beginning, that, that, that series, but I'm sure many, if not all of us, have had the experience of watching a movie where we are aware of something 
that one of the characters is not aware of. I like watching murder mysteries. Seems kind of dark, I know, from a preacher, but okay. Um, And there's always this situation in murder mysteries, it seems, when there is a sympathetic character who finds themselves wandering into an abandoned building, it seems, or an industrial site. Inevitably, there seems to be sheets of plastic hanging up and work lights. You know, when you see that, something bad is coming. Sheets of plastic hanging are never good. (laughs) You know something bad is going to happen. You know the murderer is there. You want to yell out, stop, don't open the door, turn around, go home, leave, just go. And Jesus is telling us what we need to know. Giving us eyes to see the full picture and the whole story that life can deaden our spiritual vision too. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. We live in the in-between of time of Jesus' first coming to inaugurate his kingdom and his second coming, where he will come in fullness and completion with all things being made new under his rule. We live in the in-between time, during which time churches like ours serve as outposts of his kingdom rule, serving as both a, a sample of what life in his kingdom will look like and a signpost pointing others to him, inviting them to find forgiveness and life in him, inviting you, if you've not done so, to find forgiveness and life in him. And as those living this out in hostile territory, Jesus comforted the Thyatiran believers who must have felt incredibly weak and powerless with the assurance of his vindication and his authority behind them. Remember, before ascending to heaven, Jesus left the disciples with a similar assurance. He said in the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promised his presence would be with his people as they operate under his authority and in light of his kingdom priorities over all other considerations and distractions that might tempt them to compromise. To the one who overcomes, he promises not only the privilege of sharing with him and his authority when his kingdom rule fully comes, but he offers himself as the greatest reward. Look at verse 29. I will also give to that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The morning star, astronomically speaking, is Jesus, but what is, the, uh, is, is Venus. But what is the significance of the morning star here? Well, if we read the end of Revelation, we discover it. Chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. This is what Jesus promises to those who overcome. Our greatest reward is Jesus himself. So Jesus' letter to Thyatira is a specific message to an actual church addressing their particular issues, but it is an open letter 
to all who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what has it said to us? We have seen that there were things in Thyatira to admire and to aspire to. These are things Jesus wants for his people, that he wants for us. Love, faith, service, making strides, and progressing in him. But we have been warned to be aware and on guard of threats to a church's and to our own personal faithfulness to Jesus that cannot and should not be tolerated. Compromise tends to be subtle, yet serious over time. So what should you do? If you've started down the path as a Christian, repent. Don't tolerate it or treat it lightly. Confess it to Jesus. Don't miss the opportunity to receive forgiveness from him and a fresh start with him. And then continue in him, knowing that you have been given the promise and assurance of vindication under the authority of King Jesus. Hold on to what you have. Treasure his promises and time in his presence as more precious than gold. Continue in him in spite of social opposition, difficulty, or financial sacrifice because you know it's worth it. Because Jesus is worthy. He is the bright morning star. He is our greatest reward. Let's pray. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lord Jesus, please give us eyes to see what you want us to see of you and ourselves as a result of considering your message to your church in Thyatira. We know that it was written to them, but you invite all to hear what you have to say to these churches in Revelation. Where you have shown us what is good and praiseworthy in your eyes, help us to likewise admire and aspire to these things. Where you have warned us of the danger of tolerating that which leads to compromise, help us to be vigilant and, if necessary, repentant, that we might know your mercy and cleansing power. Where you have turned our eyes to eternal realities of your coming rule and our place in it, make us steadfast and immovable, Help us stand firm to the end, looking to you and your presence as our greatest reward. We ask this all in the mighty and powerful name of our Savior and King, the name of Jesus. Amen.